All right, let me start off. It's been a little while since we've met, so let me start off with a quick story uh, that will lead into these chapters, and then we'll do a, a quick review of context and where we've been in the book of Revelation. Uh, an Englishman named Malcolm Muggeridge, uh, born 1903, died 1990. Uh, in his 20s, he was enamored with communism. Uh, like a lot of young people at that time, he just thought, this sounds great. This sounds like it'll solve all the world's problems and fix everything. And then in the 30s, when he was in his 30s, he spent some time in the Soviet Union after having grown up in Great Britain, and he quickly decided he did not like communism. He was an anti-communist guy, and he was for uh, free trade and free markets and freedom and all the rest of it. So he lived a fascinating life. Uh, in World War II, he served as a soldier and a spy, and then after World War II, he was, uh, had a conversion experience, became a believer, and he was in India, and at times he was sort of doing some diplomatic work, and he was doing journalistic work, and there's a story from his life that is uh, equal parts interesting, and it applies to Revelation 17 and 18. So he was in India. And he was married at the time, but his wife was not with him. And so she's a long ways from home, and he's all by himself, more or less, in India. And he's got a home that overlooks a river. And in this river, the ladies from the village would come down and do their laundry and bathe and all the rest of it. And one night, all alone, he looks across the river and he sees this Indian woman coming down to the river, not just to do laundry, but to bathe. And she disrobes and she hops in and the thought crosses his mind uh, my wife's a long way from where I'm at right now and I don't know anybody here and they don't know me and I wonder if something could happen here and temptation uh, led to all sorts of thoughts in his head and he just impulsively made the decision I'm going to swim across this river and see if maybe I can spend the evening with this woman and no one would ever know about it. So he jumps in the river, and he swims ac across the river. And uh, as he approached her, this is what he discovered. I'll just share with you the quote that he wrote. Uh, she was old and hideous. He, he couldn't see that from across the river at night, but she was old and hideous. Her skin was wrinkled, and worst of all, she was a leper. This creature grinned at me, showing a toothless mask. What a dirty and lecherous woman. Now, as he tells the story, he immediately pivots and says that as he swam across and he saw this woman for what she was and he was disgusted by her in the moment, he quickly realized the disgusting thing in this situation is my heart. And he was ashamed and embarrassed and humbled by the entire episode. And what I'm trying to drive home to you as you think about Revelation 17 and 18 and the, the rest of this book, is that there's two women being described here. And one of these women, as you look at her, is beautiful. And her clothes are amazing. And she's very seductive, intentionally so. But as you get closer, and you see her more clearly, you realize she's not all she's cracked up to be. The other woman, right now, doesn't look like much. She's not very impressive, not very beautiful, but in the end, this other woman 
turns out to be the bride of Christ, dressed in white garments. And there's this interplay at the back of Revelation between these two women, at times described as two cities, Babylon and Jerusalem. Uh, A prostitute, Babylon, or the bride, Jerusalem. And again, we've talked about the book of Revelation for months now, The nature of apocalyptic writing is that it pulls back the curtain and it shows you what's real. Not necessarily what you can see with your eyes, but what's true and what's real underneath it. And that's what John's doing with these two women. You look at them at first glance and you make an assumption about them, but John pulls back the curtain and he helps you to understand what's real in these two women in these two cities. So, just quick review. Revelation has seven sevens, and we've come a long way in plowing through these seven different sevens. The outline I put on your notes every week, we'll put it up on the screen again. There's a prologue at the beginning, and there's an epilogue at the end. And then in the middle, there's seven sevens, and the one in italics is set apart because chapter 4 and 5 isn't really presented as a seven. It's just kind of the foundational vision for the whole book, helping you understand who it is that sits on the throne, the Lord God, who is holy, 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 and the Lamb. And they share the throne together. And so that's four and five. It's foundational to the book. Let me just very quickly, at the risk of oversimplifying Revelation, don't take this and be crazy with it, but I'm just going to color code this to show you some differences in parts of the book. Okay, Up at the top, the green, the seven letters. Those seven letters ground the whole book of Revelation in space-time history. It's not written to Americans. It's not written to people in the 21st century. It was written to seven churches that really existed with real people and real problems and all of those things. And if you want to make sense of anything in the book, you've got to understand it in its original historical context You've got to make sense of what was going on in real time. And we're going to do some of that tonight. You've got to think about what was really going on in the lives of these churches. You have to do that in Revelation 17 and 18. So yellow, that's the the centering vision for the whole book that frames how you think about God and Jesus. These three sevens that are blue, the seals, the trumpets, and the visions of conflict, for the most part... Those three blue sevens deal with the inter-advental period, okay? That's the big scope of church history from the ascension of Jesus to the return of Jesus. They deal with what you can expect life to be like in that big inter-advental period. Now, they all go to the end. They take you to the end, and we've talked about Revelation keeps going to the end, and then it backs up, and it goes to the end, and it backs up. We'll see that again in the, the end of the book. These last three, they deal with the inner advental period, but they have a stronger emphasis on the end. And when I say the end, I'm talking like the end when people typically think about Revelation. Oh yeah, Revelation's about the last couple years of human history and Jesus coming back and all that stuff. These three, and we're down here in the seven visions of victory, they deal a little bit more heavily with things that you can expect at the end. But they still describe life today. They just have a little bit of an emphasis more on the end. So maybe that helps you. Maybe it doesn't. Uh, You can do with that what you want. We are here, the seven visions of victory, 
and it's chapter 17, 18, and 19. So tonight we're going to do 17 and 18. In a month we're going to do 19 all by itself. And then we'll do chapter 20 all by itself. And then we'll pick up 21 and 22 and make it all the way through the end of the book. So that's where we're headed. Let's think about these seven visions of victory. Uh, they are arranged. This seven that we're starting tonight, it's arranged as a chiasm. And the wedding of the lamb is at the middle. And I need you to understand that these sevens are not necessarily arranged in chronological order. John's focus is not giving you a roadmap of A, then B, then C, then D in one straight line. He's describing to you uh, these visions of victory at the end. And when you look at this chiasm, you can just draw a line from the great prostitute Babylon. That corresponds down here to the bottom to the beast and the false po uh, prophet thrown into the lake of fire. Thematically, those two connect. And then the same is true with the fall of Babylon and this announcement of battle in chapter 19. It's essentially talking about the same thing in those two passages. The worship in heaven that we'll get to next week in 19 is focused on Christ who shows up in a white horse. Those two things are connected. And then at the middle of the chiasm is this wedding. And if you know anything about chiasms or you paid attention when we've pointed them out on Sunday mornings or Wednesday nights, the most important part is the middle. And so the most important part of these seven is the wedding of the lamb right there at the middle. And again, that brings up the contrast to the two women. We're not going to talk so much about the bride tonight. We're going to talk about this prostitute. But you can see how the contrast plays out uh, in this particular section. So a few quotes just to get our feet wet here. Uh, Schreiner says, history has ended with the seventh trumpet. But John circles back. And he looks at history from another angle. This should be familiar to us as readers at this point. Uh, he just keeps going back, describing the same thing from a different perspective. Uh, Derek Thomas, very helpful book. Let's study Revelation. He says, the next three chapters, 17, 18, 19, describe the systematic destruction of every enemy of God. So they're visions of victory. All of God's enemies are going to be destroyed in this section. There's an enormous red dragon. There's a beast from the sea. There's a beast from the earth. There's a city of Babylon. There's all these people who bear the mark of the beast. They're all going to be destroyed in this section uh, as God, God acts to uh, establish victory. And then a quote from Eugene Peterson. The judgment theme is completed in the portrayal of a great whore. From there, there is a narration of her destruction and a song on the same subject. So I'm showing you this quote for these two words, narration and song. He's going to tell you about the destruction, then he's going to sing about the destruction. He's not moving chronologically to say something else happened after this. It's not all that different than when you read the story of the Exodus and Moses and the people come through the Red Sea. What do they do next? They sing about it. They turn around and Moses writes a song and then Miriam writes a little short song and they sing these songs. It's not that something different happened, it's that they're retelling what just happened in a different form and that's what we're about to see in 17 and 18. So one last point and we'll read chapter 17. Uh, Revelation 17 and 18 is deeply rooted in the prophetic rebuke of the original Babylon. So it's not a major point, but I think it's important just to bring this up from time to time as we've gone through Revelation, 
John doesn't have a whole lot in Revelation that's brand new stuff. John has actually read the Old Testament and he knows it really, really, really well. And when he thinks about what he's seeing in these visions and he thinks about how he's going to describe it to his readers, what he does most of the time is not make up brand new stuff, but he just pulls from the Old Testament. And he doesn't quote it exactly, but he kind of reworks it and reshapes it, not changing the meaning, but putting it into his own words. And so what I'm saying to you is when we read Revelation 17 and 18, you could go back and read these chapters and say, well, John just stole it. We did just steal it. But the Holy Spirit inspired John, and the Holy Spirit inspired these Old Testament texts, just like these New Testament texts, and John's borrowing heavily from the Old Testament. So, let's read Revelation 17. If you like weird things in the book of Revelation, this chapter has your name all over it. So, buckle up. Verse 1. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, and I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality, and with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on earth have become drunk. And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names, and it had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. And on her forehead was written a name of mystery, Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and earth's abominations. That's quite a name. I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. When I saw her, I marveled greatly, but the angel said to me, why do you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast with the seven heads and ten horns that carries her. The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction. And the dwellers on earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will marvel to see the beast because it was and is not and is to come. This calls for a mind with wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman is seated. There are also seven kings, five of whom have fallen, one is the other has not yet come and when he does come he must remain only a little while as for the beast that was and is not it is an eighth but it belongs to the seventh and it goes to destruction are you tracking with all this and the ten horns that you saw are ten kings who've not yet received royal power but they are to receive authority as kings for one hour together with the beast these are of one mind and they hand over their power and authority to the beast they will make war on the Lamb, and the Lamb will conquer them, for He is Lord of lords and King of kings. And those with Him are called chosen and faithful. And the angel said to me, The waters that you saw where the prostitute is seated are peoples and multitudes and nations and languages. And the ten horns that you saw, they and the beast will hate the prostitute 
They will make her desolate and naked and devour her flesh and burn her up with fire. For God has put it into their hearts to carry out his purpose by being of one mind and handing over their royal power to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. And the woman that you saw is the great city that has dominion over the kings of the earth. We're now almost to the end of the book of Revelation. Uh, We've had a summer break. And all during the summer, I've thought to myself, is there a better way to teach this book? There probably is a better way to teach the book than what we've been doing. In my brain, what I'm doing with you is walking through this passage just like I would try to make sense of it in my own head and understand all these images. And there's a balance because we're here starting at 7.30 and we've got to get out of here at some point that we can't give great detail to all of these images, but I don't want to skip all these images because you have questions and I have questions. And so we're just going to do what we've been doing and try to plow through this and make sense of this in chunks as we go. So we're going to start with Revelation 17, 1 to 6. I want to note that this is the third time in the book of Revelation that we read that John has been taken away in the Spirit. And you can put as much or as little stock into that as you want to. But two other times in the book, he was taken away in the Spirit uh, to experience some kind of vision. And it's chapter 1, verse 10, 4, 2, and then here again in 17, 3. So the Spirit is showing him this vision. Uh, One of the seven angels who poured out one of the seven bowls back in chapter 16 prepares John to see the judgment of the great prostitute. That's what we're reading about here, the judgment of this prostitute. We're trying to make sense of who this prostitute is and what is this judgment that's being described. So just look in the text here in the first six verses. Notice these these images. We're going to try to sort through as many of them as we can. Uh, Seated on many waters, and it says later that that was peoples and nations and tribes and tongues and all the rest. Uh, It says the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality with this woman. Kings on earth sexual immorality with this prostitute. It says, this is a great image, the dwellers on earth are drunk on her sexual immorality. So there's rulers and kings involved, there's dwellers on earth. You know by now that's a a code word, a phrase in Revelation for non-Christians, those who dwell on the earth. That's not every human being on the earth, that's non-believers, non-Christ followers, are drunk on this prostitute's sexual immorality. Uh, She's riding a beast. It's not the first time we've seen a beast in the book of Revelation. Back in chapter 12, 13, 14, there were multiple beasts. There was a dragon and a beast from the sea and a beast from the land. This is not a totally new image. It's reworking all of that. Uh, She's beautifully dressed. She has a cup of abominations, and her name is Babylon, the mother of prostitutes and earth's abominations. Uh, So let's sort through some of these things. Uh, The beast, let's talk about the beast with the blasphemous heads uh, or the blasphemous names, the seven heads, the ten horns. First introduced in Revelation 13 as a satanic attempt to use political power to destroy the people of God. So you remember back in chapter 13, there was two beasts. Uh, One was from the sea, one was from the land. One uses power and political pressure and threats and we'll kill you if you don't do this. The other one 
is described more as a false prophet who tricks people and seduces people. It's almost like a good cop, bad cop routine. One comes in very heavy and threatening and imposing, and the other says, oh, come on, we just want you to join us, follow along. And so we've seen this beast back in Revelation 13. Uh, I want you to remember something we said back in Revelation 13, and that's this beast is a composite. It's a composite of all Daniel's beasts that you read about in Daniel chapter 7. So you can go back and read Daniel 7. In Daniel 7, there's a series of four beasts. And they, as you read about them in Daniel, they look something like this. Let's put the picture up here. You've got a lion with wings, and you've got a bear with these ribs, and these kind of a lopsided bear. And then you've got this leopard with wings and all these heads, and he's super quick. And then you've got this terrible beast out of the sea. And as you read about this beast here in Revelation 13 and then in 17, John's mixing all of those images together. So it's a composite picture. And this is why you need to know this. John in this vision is not just describing one particular nation, but he's describing all kinds of nations. He's taken all these different beasts that represent different nations in Daniel, and he's mixing them together so that you understand this isn't just one particular nation, but this is a series of nations. All of these wicked nations that have come along are represented by this beast. And there will be a final manifestation of this beast at the end, but you can't just isolate it to one particular country or nation. Uh, so the woman riding the beast is identified as Babylon. And what I'm saying to you is that when John talks about Babylon, he is talking about Rome. And he's talking about all world powers who oppose God and seek to destroy God's people, both. So in space-time history, John's readers read about Babylon and they look around and they say, well, who is this? Who would it be? They would immediately have understood that he's talking about Rome. And he didn't even, we'll get into this. He didn't even have to say Rome for them to think Rome because he gives them all sorts of clues that he's talking about Rome. But when he mixes those beasts, just like he did in chapter 13, he's saying to you, it's not just Rome. It's not just Greece. It's not just the Medes and the Persians. It's not just the Babylonians. It's not just the Assyrians or the Egyptians. But it's any nation that would come along and oppose God and oppose his people. So just a few uh, quotes here. One is from Ladd. The harlot sits on a succession of empires. She had her embodiment in historical Babylon and in first century historical Rome and, in the end, in the eschatological Babylon. So it's not just one particular nation uh, that we're talking about here. Nancy Guthrie, that's the book the ladies used. The woman represents the world in opposition to God and his people. Don't just think that it's one particular nation. And this is where people sell prophecy books like crazy. They come out with a book and they say, oh, it's Iraq. Oh, no, it's Afghanistan. Oh, no, it's Russia. Oh, no, it's China. Oh, no, it's North Korea. And that's not the point. By mixing all these images, John is saying to you, it's any of these nations that comes along and opposes God and his people. And it was back then, Rome was the big obvious manifestation. And there's been lots of them throughout history, and there will be more in the future. Schreiner explains this business about sexual immorality. And uh, he's helpful here. Sexual immorality is a, the image you see in Hosea. And it's the idea that the city of man has loved and served other gods. They participated in idolatry. So 
So you read this stuff about sexual immorality. You're not necessarily to limit that to what we would immediately think of as sexual immorality. In apocalyptic literature, it's often talking about idolatry. Uh, Revelation 17, you see a, seduct a seductress. She has every intention of having us for herself, and she does not want us to hold out for the bridegroom who we'll meet in chapter 19. Uh, one last quote from Poitras. This is really helpful. Babylon stands for the city of Rome with all its immorality. Rome was a source of all manner of idolatry and the paganism of the cities of Asia Minor. Each made, uh, made each one a small manifestation of Babylon and our modern cities today with their wealth and false religions and sexual exploitation are uh, modern forms of Babylon. And guess what? Little Babylon's, little b, Little Babylons operate in the recesses of our own heart. Uh, he's talking about Rome, but by using Babylon instead of Rome, just saying Rome, he's making it timeless. And he's applying this truth to any godless, wicked nation that came before and any godless, wicked nation that would come after. So if you go back, uh, we won't look at it, but Revelation 11 talks about this city. And it doesn't call it Rome, and it doesn't call it Babylon. John says, symbolically, it's Sodom and Egypt. Sodom and Egypt. That's a weird mashup of cities and nations. Sodom and Egypt. And what he's saying is, there's a little bit of Babylon in Sodom. There's a little bit of Babylon in Egypt. There's a little bit of Babylon, air quotes, Babylon, in all these wicked nations that have come along and opposed God's people. So, that gets us up through verse 6. This is the tough part. 6 to 14, and I gave you two quotes from Schreiner. For whatever it's worth, I think Tom Schreiner is one of the smartest humans I've ever met in my whole life. I had him for Greek class. I had him for New Testament class. He's off the charts, world-class Bible scholar, amazing, and he gives us these hopeful statements in his commentary. Uh, this is one of the most difficult texts to interpret in the entire book. And he means it so much, he says it twice in the same book. I know those quotes basically say the same thing, and I'm just driving home to you that 6 to 14, the greatest minds in the world, when they're honest, say this is really tough sledding to figure out what John is trying to drive at here. So we'll try to make sense of it. Uh, there's an angelic guide that shows up and is helping John and this angel says that he will help explain the mystery. Uh, so we read about a mystery, and the angel says, I'll explain the mystery of the woman and the beast. And the angel tells John, you're going to need a mind of wisdom for this. And I just want to point out to you that that statement, you will need a mind of wisdom to understand this. The only other time it's mentioned in Revelation is Revelation 13, 18. We'll read about the dragon and the first beast and the second beast and the mark of the beast and the 666 and all of that business. And John says to his readers, hey, figuring this out is going to require a mind of wisdom. You're going to have to think about this and chew on it. So we saw that back in chapter 13 and it applies here. Uh, I'm going to say to you something I said back in chapter 13. When you use wisdom to understand the symbols and the numbers presented, Please take the numbers seriously and don't take them literally. By all means, take them seriously, but be very careful about taking them 
literally. And so in these verses, uh, there's a couple of different images and numbers, and I've just listed them here. There's five of them we need to think about. Uh, There's seven heads on this beast, and John tells us there's seven mountains. And then he says there's seven heads and there's seven kings. So he's kind of doubling up here on the imagery. And then there's this weird business about an eighth comes along and the eighth belongs to the seventh, which sounds like new math or something that they're teaching kids these days. There's an eighth, but it's really in the seventh, clear as mud. Uh, There's ten horns, and he says that there are ten kings. So you're like, I thought there were seven kings. Now there's ten kings. This is confusing. And then he talks at the end about one hour. And so we'll just talk about each of those in turn. Uh, The imagery, if you just try to be really literal with it, has all kinds of art. You can Google this, and you can find all kinds of weird pictures of dragons um, that have all the heads and a woman and she's a seductress, and the crowns, and the, all the rest of it. So you can do with that whatever you want. Uh, let's talk about the seven heads and the seven mountains. Um, historically, the city of Rome was built on seven hills. That's just historical fact if you study ancient Rome. And that's sort of a, a cartoonish-looking picture. This is just like a modern-day map of the city with all these seven hills plotted onto it. And any person living in the ancient world would have known about Rome, John's original readers. And when he said seven hills, they all would have said, oh, Rome was built on seven hills. So he's telling us Babylon, this woman, this city, this whatever, is built on seven hills. Obviously, he's talking about Rome. That's a historical reference. But he doesn't call it Rome. And he could have just said Rome. But he doesn't just mean Rome. He uses Babylon to make the whole thing timeless. So clearly Rome is the reference, but it's more than Rome. Uh, Seven heads and seven kings. There's two ways that people try to make sense of this. The first one, and this gets wonky. Like I lose my brain reading the commentaries on this. I can't even understand what guys are trying to say. But they map out the first 10, 12, 15 Roman emperors. And they try to take these seven, and they try to say, okay, it's one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. But then you read the next guy, and he says, uh, Julius doesn't really count, because he was different than the others. The government changed, so you really start with Augustus. And then you read the next guy, and the next guy says, well, some of these guys down here, there was like three of them in one year, so they actually all go together. And everybody you read has a different sorting of trying to figure out who are these ten kings that are coming. Is it this guy, then this guy, then this guy? And they try to sort it out in identifying these heads and these seven heads or these seven kings. I'm just telling you, it makes absolutely no sense to me. And it's completely arbitrary. I'm telling you what all these guys are doing is they're starting with an agenda. They want to prove a timeline. And they say, well, it has to be this time And so we're going to start here. Why are you cutting Julius Caesar off? Well, we'll have a reason. We're not going to include Caesar. Why do you lump these three guys together? Well, it fits my timeline better. And they just play with it, and it really doesn't make any sort of sense. Other people say it's not talking about Roman emperors, but it's talking about empires. And so they go back in history, and they say, let's start with Egypt. 
and then we'll move on to the Babylonians, and then we'll move to the Medes and the Persians, and then we'll move to the Greeks, and then we'll move to the Romans, and they try to map it out on history. And we talked about all these approaches way, way, way back in broad approaches to how you make sense of the book, and none of them have any real basis or connection in what John is describing here. He's not trying to lay out for you a succession of emperors. Uh, he's not trying to lay out a succession of world empires. Uh, and I know there's math in here that people get curious about. There's five, and then one's to come, and then one more's to come, but he's not going to be here and all that stuff. And I'm just telling you that same kind of talk shows up in other apocalyptic writings. And the point is not for you to count off Roman emperors and start a timeline, like on your phone, hey, we have 25 years till whatever's going to hit. The point is to say it's close. These things are close. And that's the point that John's trying to make here. Then he goes into this business about the eighth and the seventh. It's an eighth that belongs to the seventh. And people go crazy on this, trying to pull out, well, it's this emperor's the eighth or that emperor's the eighth. Or they look to the United Nations and they pull out, well, there's seven of these and this could be the eighth. And they just get really, really wonky with it. And this is what I think he's saying. All of these kingdoms, all of these nations are going to come and go, and they're all going to be Babylon, just over and over and over again, different manifestations of Babylon. And then at the end, there's going to be an eighth, like there's going to be a final Babylon. There's going to be all these little A antichrists, and at the end, there's going to be a big A antichrist. But you need to understand this eighth isn't like the first one that's popped along. He's just another one of the sevens. He's part of this same group. This is nothing new. You've seen this movie before, a kingdom, a power that opposes God and opposes his people. Uh, it's, it's played out throughout history in these sevens, and then there will be an eighth, a final manifestation of that at the end. Uh, the ten horns and the ten kings. You can look back to Revelation 16. There's one of the descriptions of Armageddon in Revelation 16. And it basically lays out for you these ten kings are going to come together. You're not supposed to figure out individually who they are. You take the number seriously, not literally. You say ten is a full number in Revelation. So all the kings of the earth are going to set themselves against the Lord and against his anointed. That's Psalm 2. The kings of the earth set themselves against the Lord and against his anointed. And that's what he's describing here. Uh, the one-hour business. If you want to be literal, people come up with all kinds of end-time scenarios where these kings give power for an hour, they have it, they lose it. It's just saying to you it's going to be that quick in the grand scheme of things. It's like me saying to you somebody had five minutes of fame. Does it need to be an actual five minutes for that statement to be true? Absolutely not. They were a flash in the pan. And that's what John's saying as he talks about these kingdoms and all their manifestations. So let me sum all that up. I know it's a lot. It's confusing. We could dig into it more. Schreiner says this, the best solution is to interpret what John says symbolically and generally. He reflects on the empires that afflicted Israel throughout history. Uh, his point in referring to the sixth is that the end is near. Throughout history, totalitarian regimes have tilted against the people of God, and there's periods where it looks as if the power of these empires will uh, not return, as if the beast is not. But the beast, which is totalitarian power, always rises again. It may seem dead, yet it rises from the ashes and inflicts misery on the saints. This will be the pattern throughout history until the end arrives. 
But I think that's what, what John's driving at here. This is a little bit more clear when you look at 1714. 1714 answers a question that was posed back in chapter 13, the last time we talked about this beast. And the question in 13 was, who can fight against the beast? So powerful, so big, so strong, so deceptive. Who can possibly fight against the beast? And the answer in verse 14 is, the lamb can fight against the beast. He's the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And all that victory is about to be uh, brought to fruition in chapter 19. So, one or two more thoughts on chapter 17. Uh, In verse 15, 16, 17, 18. Uh, The angel is assuring John that this final unholy evil alliance will destroy itself. So this is where the angel says, look, the, the waters are peoples and multitudes and nations as prostitutes ruling over all these kingdoms. Uh, the ten horns, they and the beast, they're going to hate the prostitute. They'll make her desolate, naked, and devour her and burn her up. Um, Schreiner describes this saying, evil ultimately implodes upon itself. It is inherently self-destructive. And I think that's what John's describing to us here. Last truth in chapter 17, the angel assures us uh, that God is absolutely sovereign over the forces of evil that have sought and would seek to destroy the people of God. But we're going to talk about this in the conclusion. We're going to come back to this. This is an important truth, a clear truth, and I'm going to give you two examples of how God is sovereign over all that you just read about in chapter 17. We'll circle back to that at the end. So let's read 18. 18 is a unique chapter in the book. Uh, 